Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, good to be back and uh, see all of you. Thanks for uh, coming this morning. And uh, it's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. And before we get started, uh, I want to just take a quick poll, if you will, and ask how many folks here have a pet at home? How many folks here have a pet at home? Okay, great. So quite a few of you. And for, for those of you who sit, don't have a pet at home, that's okay. I understand. You know, pets are messy. Um, they can be kind of a hassle sometimes for some people. I understand that. But, you know, for a lot of people, they, they, are, they are a great source of joy and of life. Uh, you know, especially, you know, the ones that are just so cute and adorable. I mean, uh, you know, how cute is that? You know, aw, right? They're so cute. The ones that like to love us and cuddle up with us and that are loyal to us, and often grow up to help come to our aid and even protect us from harm. Now, this is a picture of a couple of our cats from years ago, a couple of our cats that, that brought us joy over the years. Um, these particular cats, um, actually, um, the, the one before, they're no longer with us, unfortunately, but they gave us a great joy for many, many years. And this next uh, picture here is a, a picture of our current kitty, and that was when he was just a kitten, and he's curled up with, with Tori when, you know, she was little too, and, and just a lovable, lovable cat that has brought great joy to our home, especially to my wife, Annette. And um, pets can be a blessing. They can be an amazing blessing. They can give you life. They can give you companionship and warmth. But what if your pet does just the opposite of that. <laughs> what if you have a dangerous pet? You know, the kind of pet that you worry will be the end of you. Literally, be the end of you. The kind that gives you scars and wounds. You feed it, you house it, you take care of it, and on a good day, all it does is take your resources. But on a bad day, it could leave you bleeding or bruised, or maybe even take a finger, or a hand, or another limb. You know, everyday pet owners, they worry about their pets. They worry about the smell at the house sometimes, if people are going to come over. They worry about the, the dog hair, or the cat hair, or whatever that might be all over the house. It, I mean, it just happens. And they worry, too, about their friends that they might have over who have allergies. You know, incidentally, I, I am, we have cats at the house, and I'm allergic to cats. But... Um, but, you know, that's normal. Those are the things that are normal. Some of us worry that our dog will eat our homework. But some pet owners have to worry about their pet eating their friends. And if you have a pet that gets in the way of your relationships because it's dangerous, because it eats them, what do you do? I mean, it prevents you from living a normal life. You always have to live in this fear because this pet of yours, it scares people away. It scares even your family away. It may even scare you. And at the very least, you have owned some pets like that, you're going to have to sleep with one eye open. And hopefully that's the one that you have left. But now, hey, look, I, I'm not trying to disparage or insult or even offend those who might have exotic or unusual pets. I understand it could be quite a significant novelty, especially if you 
have the training and the equipping to actually deal with a pet like that. And you have the facilities to handle it. But for the most of us, having a dangerous pet at the house is, well, dangerous. And certainly there are animals out there in the wild that should stay out there in the wild. Or at the very least be handled by people with the proper training to handle a pet like that. Now, I know this analogy breaks down because somewhere out there, there's somebody that has a ferocious beast at the house. There was an old uh, kid's cartoon, I think, when our kids were growing up, called Maggie and the Ferocious Beast, about a little red-headed girl with her ferocious beast that she had as her friend. And while that might, might be okay for, you know, a children's cartoon, it doesn't work out in, in reality. Because even if you're Bindi Irwin... There are creatures on the planet that are just not suitable to have at the house as a pet. And even if you're, you're still not convinced, imagine then, you know, if, if, if you have an imagination, fantasy or science fiction. Imagine we're not talking about an animal that you know of. It's like, more like a fire-breathing dragon, or maybe it's a deadly alien. You have to agree at that point that monsters just don't make good pets. Now, in our spiritual lives... Sometimes we have dangerous pets that we live with. Pets that aren't good for us, figuratively speaking. And that's called sin. It's called sin. Now, sin, I know, it can be an ugly and offensive word, particularly in today's culture, where people are trying to say, well, what is sin anyway? And I think you're being offensive in calling something a sin. I mean, that implies that there's an absolute standard by which we should judge other people's behavior. But who are we to judge somebody else's behavior? Who are we to determine what's right and wrong for them? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't we all be able to do everything that we want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anyone? And this idea that there might be some all-powerful God who sits in heaven and judges people because they're sinful, well, that's offensive. That feels offensive. That seems offensive. And guess what? It is. It is offensive. Because you know what a sin is? It's something that displeases and offends God. You see, no one is more offended by sin than God because the definition of sin, if we believe what the Bible says, is things that contradict God's character. It contradicts His word. It contradicts His provision for us. It's offensive to Him. Now... We're not talking about just simple mistakes, just simple missteps. We're talking about blatant knowing disobedience of what we know to be right and pleasing to God. And you know what? If we believe what the Bible says, we know that none of us is perfect. All of us, at some point, we've done it. We've sinned. The Bible tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even after we put our faith in Jesus Christ and recognize him as the leader of our lives, we still struggle with this because there's always this residue of our past, this residue of our own human sinful nature. Now, most people, let's be fair, don't go around visibly sinning in public for the whole world to see. I mean, I hope not many of us sitting in this room are in the paper for the wrong reasons. Or are on the nightly news for the wrong reasons. But even for most of us, the way that this shows up in our everyday life, it's like having this 
pet that's dangerous and deadly, but we keep it a secret. We keep it hidden from everyone else. We feed it, and we house it, and we support it. We live with it, and it has become our own. We are now its owner and its master. And sin always makes a bad pet. Because this type of pet, just like those dangerous, deadly monsters that we could have as a pet, they don't do anything positive for us. Except for take our resources and change our lives, not for the better. And sin, just like having that deadly pet at the house, it has consequences. But that's what's troubling about this issue of sin, because what really is the direct connection between sin and consequences? I mean, let me ask this question. Do sometimes people do bad things, but nothing bad happens to them? Some people, you know, they do things wrong, but nothing seems to happen. There doesn't seem to be a consequence. Does that ever happen? What about on the flip side? Are there people who never do anything wrong, so to speak, and they still suffer, they still have the consequences? And I think we understand that rhetorical question. We know sometimes good things happen to people who do bad things. And sometimes bad things happen to people who do good things or who don't do bad things. So what is this connection between sin and consequences? Well, I'm going to take a little diversion here because the Bible actually touches on this in some detail. And it comes from the Old Testament book of Job. Now, to summarize this story that's contained in this Old Testament account of Job, it starts with what seems to be this conversation that takes place between God and Satan, the devil. And and Satan suggests to God that, hey, you know, you're... This servant of yours that you're proud of, Job, you know, he's only good because you're good to him. But let bad things happen to him, and he will curse your name. And so God, I mean, kind of like, really? Did God do that? It permits Job to actually suffer as long as his life is spared. And then the story kind of starts with Job literally losing everything. He has all these bad things that happen to him. He loses all of his possessions. He loses all of his wealth. He loses all of his servants. And he even loses his family. And if that wasn't bad enough, he breaks out in these painful sores that come all over his body. And yet, after all that, he refuses to turn his back on God. He refuses... To reject God. That's one good dude. I mean, if I went through all that, I mean, how would I react? That is one good dude. Now, Job had friends. And they came by to comfort him after all this had happened to him. And when they arrived, when they showed up, they did a great job. They did a great job comforting Job. They did. And then... They open their mouths. <laughs> and when they open out their mouths, and what came out of their mouths just made it worse. 
Because they gave Job the kind of treatment or advice that we've probably heard when bad things happen to us in our lives. Hey, Job, you know, you must have done something really bad to deserve all this. What is it? What did you do? You see, they thought in their economy, just like people do in our economy, well, you do bad things, bad things happen to you. So you must have done something really bad. You know, we've, we've discovered Job, he's got a monster in his basement nobody knows about. We're going to find out. What is it? What did he do? And a significant part of this book of Job is literally each one of his friends taking a turn with their well-intentioned sermons that are just directed at Job. And, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to plead with him, hey, Job, just come clean. Make it easy on yourself. Get on with it. Get over with it. And get it over with quickly by just saying what you did. Just confess. What did you do? And Job, he's like, well, I, 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 can't, I can't explain it because I really haven't done anything to deserve this. And he says it over and over. Look, I, I haven't done this bad thing that you think I'm, I've done. And they go round and round. You'd have one friend that they would just go on this monologue. And then you'd have Job responding with his own monologue. And at a certain point, it gets a little weird because at a certain point, Job literally starts to lose his mind. And he goes into this agonizing tirade where there's just all kinds of stuff coming out of his mouth. And in the middle of all that tirade, he actually stumbles upon some of the most significant words that have ever been recorded in the Bible. And they come from Job Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, or however you access your your copy of God's Word, we're going to be reading just a few verses, actually, from uh, Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. Now, Job is, you know, a little less than halfway through the middle of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Job chapter 19, I'm going to be starting in verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In these verses, Job literally summarizes the Bible, particularly in one sentence. You see, he's summarizing the state of man in this fallen, sinful world in need of rescue that can only come from God. Not only that, he talks about how God would come to earth and conquer sin. And that because God is coming to conquer sin, that he would have the final say on sin in the end. 
He would have the final say on who's acceptable to God. And for those people, including Job himself, they would see God and they would live with him forever, even long after their physical deaths. Now, in context, he actually presents these words almost by accident. Have you ever had something like that happen to you where you've been agonizing and lamenting and brooding and stewing over something? And then all of a sudden you just kind of vent and let it all out and you just start spewing out in this pain and this anger, this tirade, and in the middle of it, you answer your own problem. You come to that realization, that epiphany. Now, my wife knows about this phenomenon because there's been times in my life where I've stewed or, or been agonizing over some problem and I, I'm engaging in you know, a spirited discussion and, and all of a sudden, I know, I know that I'm on to something. Because I'll say something, and she'll give me that look. It's that subliminal conversation that we're having without words. The one where I realized that she was right all along. (laughs) In this case, Job, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. You see, at the end of the book, after all these dueling monologues are done with, God actually appears to Job and has a plain conversation with him that's actually quite interesting and and somewhat peculiar. And if you've never read Job, it's worth a read. It's quite interesting in this way. There's actually some very interesting stuff that God says. But, you know, we have this problem, you see, because Job's friends, they had this belief. They had this belief that, you know what, This is the way that the world works. You do bad things, bad things happen. Do good things, good things happen. You know, you don't do bad things, bad things don't happen. Because that's what seemed to make sense to them. That was what seemed to be logical. And in our world today, that's the same way. We feel like, well, you do bad things and bad things happen. You do good things, good things happen. And we like it that way. Now, we may not really like it, But at least we can understand it because it gives us something to work with. It gives us a formula. But the problem here is that Job really didn't do anything horrible to deserve all these bad things that happened to him. Now, I mean, Job, let's be clear here. Job never said in this book, I am completely perfect. I have never sinned ever. I am perfect. He never said that. But what he's saying here is if we're going with this economy of, you know, you give, you get what you give, I never did anything so wrong, so heinous, so horrible that would deserve these terrible things that have happened to me. And he had faith that God would see that and somehow vindicate him. And in the end of this book, God, he provides the answer. He talks to Job and then he supplies an answer that has forever amazed theologians and scholars. Because based on God's answers, both Job and his friends weren't quite right. And as much as people have historically looked at the book of Job as a book about patience or a book about suffering and how, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people, there's something bigger that's going on here and we'll miss it if we don't see through all that. Because from the perspective of sin, being saved from ultimate suffering and death isn't decided by how good we are or how bad we're not. 
It's decided by the grace of God. Now, this story began with this conversation, this weird conversation between Satan and God. And what prodded Satan to kind of bet on the wrong horse here, so to speak, was that God said, have you considered my, my servant Job? Good dude. I declare him righteous. But even what Satan didn't quite understand there was that Job wasn't righteous because he was awesome. He was righteous because God said so. God said so. God declared it. He willed it to happen because he knew he would extend grace to him. Because Job had faith in him and relied upon him to be his defender and his redeemer. In his own words, he summarizes this big idea that I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And in that simple statement, he implies that, hey, I need, I need help. I need a Redeemer. If I I have a Redeemer, it's because I need one. And he invites him to save him. And he relies upon him to save him, to do his restoring work in his life. And in the end, you see, this emphasis here isn't on sin. It's on the one who defeats sin. So for your notes this morning, this big idea is that true faith means that we recognize our sin, we regret our sin, and then we rely on God's grace through Christ to save us. You see... True faith means that we recognize our sin. We acknowledge, we see, we have a problem. We regret our sin. We're sorry. We're sorry. But most importantly, we rely upon God's grace through Christ to save us. It was always said around our home that uh, it's not enough to be sorry. You have to show sorry. But even that doesn't capture this idea here, is that we're saying, I know I've got a problem. I want to fix it, but I acknowledge that I can't do it myself. And I'm going to ask God, look, I'm sorry. Invade my life and take over every part of me and fix it because I can't do it myself. I need your grace. Now, theologians... And scholars, they refer to this idea as contrition, the state of being contrite over something that we've done wrong. Another more popular term that's used these days is called brokenness, that we're broken. It means that we realize that we're sick and that we want to get better. But it also means that we're willing to get up and go to the doctor and accept the doctor's treatment. Even if that treatment means that we might have to swallow a pill. Even if that treatment means that we're going to have to get a painful shot or an uncomfortable procedure. You see, when it comes to our sin, it means that we recognize our sin and we regret it. We're sorry. We want it to get better. And we give our lives, all of it, over to Jesus to repair. Even those private, vulnerable, hidden parts of ourselves. Well, that sounds easy, right? Simple enough. I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, so you're sick. Go to the doctor. 
What else? (laughs) The big deal is it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Many of us know that we have sin in our lives. We know we've got a problem. And we may wish that there wasn't sin in our lives. We want, we wish that we weren't sinners. We wish that we did something better with our lives. But the problem really comes in being humble enough and laying aside our pride to allow Jesus to do what only he can do with us. To let him take control. You see, many of us, myself included, we just can't bring ourselves to go to the doctor. To turn ourselves over to the treatment process. And from the outside looking in, that seems silly. I mean, if you're sick, go to the doctor. But many are just too stubborn to accept help. And when it comes to our sins, our reactions, they're not always productive. They usually fall in the category of these usual suspects. These usual suspects of shame and embarrassment, guilt, regret, and the fear of punishment. You see, we feel shame when we sin. We don't want everybody to know about it. We feel embarrassed. We don't want to be humiliated. We feel guilty. We don't want to be judged. And we feel regret. We want a do-over. Could I do this over? We fear Punishment. We fear the punishment and the consequences that we know that we deserve for what we've done. Now, these are natural, understandable reactions. They are. And if you experience those, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you because you feel them, because they have a place, particularly if they lead you to a point of repentance or of leading to God's grace. But by themselves, they're incomplete. And they're incomplete because... Just being sorry because of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you're sorry for the sin. It may be that you're sorry that you got caught. It may be that you're sorry that now you have to face the music. Now you're sorry that bad things are going to happen. But you're not really sorry about the sin itself. But true faith, true faith is sorry for the sin itself. It realizes that above all, we've offended God. We've offended God. And we're sorry about that. And we want more than anything for him to fix us and allow him to heal us. Sometimes we allow our own pride to keep us from getting the very cure that we so desperately need. And for your notes this morning, pride. Pride can blind us and block us from accepting God's grace. Pride can blind us and block us from accepting God's grace. Remember those dangerous pets? Some of us keep on feeding them, even after we know they're not good for us. We should get rid of them. And God wants to free us from our destructive patterns of sin. But when we try to cover up our sin out of shame or guilt or fear of punishment, we allow pride to keep us from the very healing that God alone can give us. You see, he tells us in his word that he forgives us for our sin, but also that he forgets our sin. He forgets our sin as far as the east is from the west. He forgets our sin. The trouble is, we keep on reminding him. 
We keep on bringing it up. And we keep on feeding those deadly pets. You see, what's at stake here is power. The power over our sin and the power that actually saves us. It's a struggle between ourselves and a struggle between God. We try to balance our own strength, our own power, our own control against the grace of God through Christ. And when we allow pride to keep us from receiving this grace, we give more weight to our own abilities. We give more weight to our own control. And this shows up in a couple of different ways in our lives. The first of which is that we keep on feeding that deadly pet. We keep on sinning. And maybe we keep on sinning because deep down we know, or we feel like we know, because the world has told us that, you know, grace isn't going to work for what we did. It's not enough. That even if there was such a thing as God's free grace, it's not big enough to overcome what I did. Because what I did was really bad. And if that's you this morning and you're feeling that way, I I really feel for you because I've felt that way too in my life. But I want to tell you something. That's not contrition. That's not contrition. That's not humility. That's not brokenness. That's pride. That's that pride that says that I have have such a big sin that it's too powerful even for what Jesus did for me by dying for me on the cross. That my sin is bigger than God's grace can handle. But the Bible tells us just the contrary of that. It tells us that when sin is big, His grace is even bigger still. And when we do this, it's not, no longer us that have a pet that we own. This pet now owns us. We've given up control of ourselves in an attempt to control and have pride and cover it up. We have given control over to this pet. This pet, sin of ours, now owns us and has become our master. And the second way that this shows up is by trying to outsmart or outwit sin in our lives. By trying to not sin by our own power. And we do this by making all these rules that we have to follow, this checklist of do's and don'ts. This is what I'm going to do, this is not what I'm going to do. And we make it so long that there's no way we can possibly succeed. Because at some level, we're going to slip up. We're going to fail. You know, it's like keeping that pet, after all. But keeping it locked in the basement. And what we do is we put a deadbolt on with another lock. And then we nail a sign to the door of the basement saying, do not enter, no matter what. But we know where this is going, don't we? Because even despite our efforts to lock it away, either one, th- one, two, one of two things is going to happen. Either it's going to get free and get loose, or we're going to temporarily lose our minds when we go down into the basement one night looking for the lucky charms that we've stored down there. And at that moment... We're going to come face to face with it and it's going to be angry and hungry. And if you can sense where I'm going with this, I mean, in the analogy of sin, many of us have been there. We've tried to keep it down, keep it hidden, keep it, you know, I'm just going to do good. I'm I'm going to not do that anymore. And then we go and we go and we go and all of a sudden we bottle it up so much and then it emerges and it emerges with a vengeance and a hunger in our lives. Trying to do this in our own power will always fail. 
We need the help of Jesus Christ. We need the help of this expert animal control, if you will. The only one that can overcome this sin in our lives. And we do this by giving him our trust and we rely upon him. And when we do that, we put more weight, if you will, than on his grace, than on our own power to resist sin. We give him the credit. He is our redeemer. He is the one who has the final say in the end. Only he can declare us righteous. Only he can overcome. But this overcoming can only happen when we come to a point of brokenness. When we allow him to do what only he can do. You see, the worst thing that any one of us can do is to fail to find grace. Now, to make this practical in our everyday lives and live this out, the first thing that we need to do is we need to swallow our pride. We need to swallow our pride. The night before Jesus was crucified, he washed his disciples' feet. But this wasn't really easy for them. And in fact, Peter in John chapter 13, verse 8, he says, you will never wash my feet because he thought to himself, look, He shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing his feet. But Jesus told him, unless I wash you, Peter, you won't have fellowship with me. And like Peter, many of us aren't comfortable letting Jesus have access to our most vulnerable parts. Like having someone wash our feet, there are parts of our own lives in our own hidden selves that we think are ugly or are dirty or maybe even disgusting. And allowing access to these parts of ourselves, it's painful because it makes us feel shame. It makes us feel awful. It makes us feel embarrassed. But like Peter, if we don't allow Jesus access to wash us, he can't help us. And as painful as it might be, we must swallow our pride and give Jesus complete access to every part of us, even the parts that we're ashamed and embarrassed by. And the next thing that we need to do is we need to ask for help. We need to ask for help. The next step is actually to say, hey, I need help. It's not enough to recognize that we have a problem and be sorry for it. We actually have to ask for help. We need to go to the doctor. And no one goes to the doctor hoping that the doctor will just tell them what their problem is and say, here's your bill. They go to the doctor because they hope the doctor will do something to help them with their problem. As for our deadly pet, I mean, it would be like having an animal control expert come out to the house and paying him lots of money just to say, well, you've got a dangerous pet down there in your basement. That's not good. Hey, good luck with that. No, we want help. But when it comes to our lives and when it comes to sin, this is where it gets hard. Because we know we've got a problem. We know actually what we have to do because we've heard it over and over and over again. We've heard it in church. We've heard it from our family. You know, the the, the words come back really simply. Stop it, right? Stop sinning. Don't do it anymore. But if you're like me, you want to ask, well, okay, that's fine. I got it. But how do I do that exactly? How do I do that exactly? And that's a good question. And the answer is you have to ask for help. And you can ask for help by praying and asking God to help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life and reveal these answers to you and to help you overcome sin in your life. 
The only warning I'll give you there is that if he does show up and give you the help, then you need to actually allow him to do it. Let him. Now, another practical way that you could do this is to ask somebody in your life to help you, to come alongside you and help you do business with this once and for all. Now, it could be a dear friend. It could be a parent. It could be a family member. It could be a mentor. It could be an accountability partner. It might be the folks in your growth group. The key is that it would be with people who you can trust to be vulnerable and honest with, who are not going to judge you, but have credibility with you to speak into your life in a loving and gentle way. But the bottom line is that you can't do it alone. You don't try to remove the monster from your basement without getting help. Ask for help. Ask for God to help you. And if you ask God to help you, He will. He specializes in repairing and rebuilding the broken. And lastly, through all of this, we should worship the one who has defeated our sin. We should worship the one who has defeated our sin. Now, there's an older film, uh, 1990 film, called Joe versus the Volcano. I don't know if anybody's actually seen that movie, but um, Joe, he's the main character. He's played by uh, actor Tom Hanks. And Joe is a miserable, lonely hypochondriac who lives in just an awful situation in his life. He's alone, and he works this menial and just demoralizing job. And he's discouraged, and he's depressed, and he doesn't feel good. And so he goes to the doctor. He goes to the doctor because he doesn't feel good. And he's hoping the doctor may be giving him a prescription to help with the depression or something like that. But to his horror... He discovers, the doctor tells him that he actually has an incurable terminal disease and he's going to die soon. This disease, it's called a brain cloud. (laughs) Yeah, a brain cloud. You can kind of see where this is going, right? But uh, so he walks out of there and he's thinking to himself, I've got nothing to live for and I didn't have a very good life to begin with. But then mysteriously, a wealthy businessman appears and makes a proposition for him. He says, look, I heard that you don't have long to live, but I'll tell you what. I'll give you the opportunity, and if you accept, you'll have the opportunity to live like a king, but die like a man. You see, he was going to spare no expense and give him access to all his wealth to live out his days in luxury, like a king. The only catch was that he'd have to die like a man by willingly jumping into a volcano on a tropical island to appease the Waponi Wu people. Now, predictably, uh, as the title of the movie suggests, he actually agrees to this proposition. And he begins his journey from New York City, and he sails down to the tropical island. And he's sailing down on a yacht that's owned by this wealthy businessman with the wealthy businessman's daughter named Patricia, played by actress Meg Ryan. And the journey to that island proves to be more of an adventure and an ordeal than they were really imagining it would be. In fact, there's not really much luxury involved in it because, ironically, he nearly dies on the trip when a storm capsizes the yacht. And they end up lost at sea, floating on top of trunks that he stored his clothes in. And after several days floating out there at sea, when it seemed like all hope was lost, There's a scene one night where he's floating out there when the moon seems to grow bigger and brighter than even the sun on most days. And it's towering over Joe on this trunk out there floating on the water. 
And at that moment, even after all he's been through, knowing that even if he gets through this ordeal and survives, then he's going to jump into a volcano. But at that moment, he stands to his feet and he says, Dear God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. I guess I forgot how big you really are. Thank you. Thank you for my life. Now, I'm not trying to endorse this movie or that quote, but it seems like an echo of the kind of brokenness that we saw in Job when he was at the end of his rope. The brokenness that means swallowing pride and asking for help and giving praise and thanks to Jesus for our lives, for overcoming our sin and saving us and making us live forever, even though we may physically die. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Now as we conclude this morning, I'd like to ask you, Do you have an awful pet that you've been hiding and feeding? Have you been too ashamed to ask for help? Have you been striving to save yourself and try to outsmart sin by yourself just by your sheer willpower alone? Have you been feeling crushed by the weight of trying to be good all the time? Have you been afraid that others would judge you if they knew the deepest parts of yourself? Would you say that you've been afraid of how people would see you if they knew, if they just knew what you struggle with in private? If so, I want to encourage you to let go of that. Ask God to help you overcome that this morning. Let him help you. When he arrives with help, let him help. Let him heal you. Don't keep on living with this deadly pet with this sin that's harming you and keeping you away from God's grace and His best for you. And today today might be that day that you pick up the phone or you have coffee with that one person you can trust to ask them if they'd come alongside you and, and do business with this issue once and for all. And on that note, I would just ask that let's not be a church where it's somehow not okay to be broken and vulnerable with each other. That we judge each other when we're just trying to accept God's grace for us. Instead, let's commit to being a church that is broken over sin, but that more than anything, worships the God who has defeated it. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. You are our Redeemer. Lord, you have overcome sin. You've conquered it for us. You've done all the work, and all we need to do is accept that work in our own lives. Lord, in the end, you will stand upon the earth, and you will have the final say over sin, and you'll have the final say on who's acceptable to you. And for those of us who willingly put our faith and trust in you and rely on you and your grace to save us, Lord, we will see you, and we will live with you forever. And we praise you for that, Lord. I ask this morning that you would help us to remember, Lord, that it's not enough just to recognize the sin in our lives, but to do something about it. And that's something that we do. is just letting you have your way in every part of us. 
that we stop letting shame and guilt and our pride get in the way of your grace. Lord, help us to remember that. And help us to do business with that once and for all. Lord, we praise you for this work that you're doing in us as individuals and as a church. We give you all the praise, and in your precious name, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.